Welcome to this episode of the Chabura Members Only Edition. In this episode, Rabbi Dweck discusses the relationship between God and Israel. In this second part of a four-part series, he discusses providence, or hashkacha. Enjoy. All right. So our objective tonight is to be speaking about... Um, Providence, or what we call in uh, in Hebrew or in Torah terms, hashgaha. Hashgaha meaning how it is that God watches, engages with us on earth. And again, as I say at the beginning of all of these uh, initial preliminary uh, discussions, these are broad strokes. These are principles that we're opening up in broad ways, right? So that we can have a sense of the framework of these things. And then please God, as we develop and we learn further and the years go on, we can dig deeper into these issues. So what I'm going to do tonight is present to you an initial offering of how we might relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's involvement with us in the world, okay? The, the one thing that I think is important for us to recognize is some of the misconceptions around this or some of the, um, what we might call popular thinking around how it is that God engages with us. Now, when I, when I say this, that's based on what I've experienced. I will, I will admit that I have been so immersed in the kind of thinking that I'm gonna to present to you tonight that I've become detached from the way that generally people tend to think about this in the modern Orthodox world. And when I say modern Orthodox, I don't mean modern Orthodox, capital M, capital O, I mean lowercase m, lowercase O in terms of our society, whether it be Haredi or otherwise. What I tend to remember and think is the general idea that people have is that because God is all knowing, that he is automatically directly involved in our world, in our lives, right? Why wouldn't he be? Right? The default is that God should be involved in the minutia of our lives, that he should care about what we're having for lunch and, and you know, just engage that way on a, on a regular basis. And I think that um, an important, there are two important things to recognize about that. First thing that is important to recognize about that is that God's involvement in our lives has to do with relationship, right? How it is that I am in his, in his experience and how it is that he is in my life right how does it he manifests me and that's a question of relationship how does that interaction occur and what we know uh, very clearly from the torah is that the intensity proximity uh, passion emotion what have you of the relationship right the degree of the relationship is variable we know that in the torah Right? We recognize where God will say, listen, I'm not really having anything to do with you. We recognize where God will say in the Torah, says, I'm completely with you and walking with you in everything that you do. We have various uh, modes in between that. And so we recognize that, there, that we can at least acknowledge, it's impossible not to acknowledge, that the Torah presents God's interaction with us on variable levels. Right? There are variable or varying uh, degrees to how it is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu deals with us. Can you give me examples of one or the other? Sorry? What does that mean? So there's a pasuk where God says, if you, then I will, right? If you walk with me haphazardly, I'll walk with you haphazardly. So that's an example. What about in terms of stories? What in term, about in terms of the, the narratives of the Torah? Is God always 
uh, uniformly and and uh, uh, consistently involved with the people. I mean, there wouldn't be a story if that was the case, right? Sorry. Seems like he's always upset, right? Seems like that he's at least upset a lot of the time. Yeah. So we know that there are times where Hakadosh Baruch Hu is present, times where he's not. When we we see Moshe Rabbeinu move Ohel Moed out of the camp because God just doesn't want to live with them anymore, right? So he moves out to the outskirts of the camp. There are situations where God's ready to kill them. There's situations where God saves them and puts them up on the highest levels of of salvation. But we recognize very clearly one doesn't have to think more about that, that there are degrees to Akadosh Baruch Hu's involvement in, 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 in interactions with us. That's one thing that we see quite, quite regularly. The other is that, and, and therefore, I think that the important thing to recognize about that is that that implies that relationship must have investment. In other words, it is very much dependent on what is put into the relationship as to the nature of the interaction and involvement, which is extremely intuitive and understandable to all of us, because any of us that have any experience in any relationship of any kind, of course, except God, right? You know, people kind of think that, and I'm saying that uh, sarcastically, recognize that the relationship's quality will have a great deal to do, if not all to do, with the nature of the investment that is placed into the relationship. I don't think that it has all to do with that because sometimes you can invest a great deal in a relationship and it doesn't work. That's also possible, right? But when we relate to God, we relate to him as being a whole functioning entity and that you know he doesn't have these psychological hangups and that if things are healthy, then he runs healthily. But it definitely has to do with how it is that the investments in the relationship manifest. So Kadosh Baruch Hu says all the time, like you were saying, if you, then I. And that runs throughout the Torah. If you X, then I, Y, right? If you walk with me faithfully, I will walk with you faithfully. Walk with me haphazardly, I'll walk with you haphazardly. If you treat me like I don't matter, I'll treat you like you don't matter, and so on and so forth. So it mirrors very much the way that we act. There's this concept that the Hachamim talk about of, of midah keneged midah, right? Where God's responses to us are not just arbitrary, they are quite responsive in kind to the manner in which we are acting, right? To the way in which we're acting. Okay, so that's that's one issue. And therefore, it means that relationship needs to be earned and built. And if that is the case, then we must really consider what the default of relationship is. And that would essentially mean that the default of relationship cannot be deeply intimate. Because then there's no room to grow in the relationship. There's no relationship to develop. The relationship just is what it is all the time. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is it is important to recognize, and I cannot stress this enough, so I ask you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. God's knowledge does not equal God's care. They are not one and the same. Just because God knows does not necessarily mean God cares. So we cannot say because God is all-knowing, he is directly and intimately involved in all of our lives, because being directly and intimately involved in all of our lives means that he cares about our lives. And God's knowledge does not equal his care. It is not synonymous. Care is earned. Knowledge is just what he is. 
his involvement in interaction is variable. So I think that that is an important thing to remember and people get very confused with that, at least in my experience. The general population get very confused. They believe because God knows me and everything that I'm doing, he's automatically engaged and caring about what it is that I'm doing. And the two are not the same. It's not true. That's a leap, an assumption that is not necessary. And like I say, we see that from the nature of how it is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu involves himself with us. If you, then I. And if you, then I is not dependent on because I know. I can know and choose not to be involved. I can know and choose to be involved. I can, yeah, but knowledge doesn't equal care. Knowledge also doesn't equal judgment, but that's for another class, right? We'll be talking about that later. Yeah. There's problems to believe in. It's like self worship. Self worship? Lama. A good way Yeah. Okay. That's the Mishnah Perkavot. The question being asked is, if I am serving God in order for him to pay attention to me, then it seems like I'm serving myself because I'm doing it for that ulterior motive rather than the service of God. Which is your question, right? Based on Leibovitch. And, the, and what I'm saying is that there's a Mishnah Mephoresh that says, yes, of course, one should not serve God in order for them to get a prize, which is what pras is. It's where the word prize comes from, yeah. right? They shouldn't get a prize for that. They should do it because it's the right thing to do. Yes, but what I would suggest to you is, is that relationship is not a prize. Relationship is the outcome of investment, right? It's like the line I like to quote from Eric Fromm all the time. Eric Fromm wrote a book called uh, The Art of Loving. And you're familiar with this? Good. So he writes one of the key lines in that book, and I would say probably one of the lines that is most central to his thesis is, the difference between mature love and immature love. Immature love says, I love you because I need you, which is very I-oriented, right? I need you, therefore I love you. Mature love says, I need you because I love you, where the love is the focal point, right? I just love you. Why? Because you're you. I love you. And so I, I need you in my life. The reality is that a person who genuinely loves if that person, for whatever reason, needs to be let go or given up, they are much more prone to do it if it's mature love. If it's immature love, one can't imagine how it is that I'm going to give this person up. And when I say give the person up, I don't just mean give the person up. I mean, if it's for that person's own good, right? This happens oftentimes with children. If a parent's relationship with the child is very personally oriented, and that is possible, they only want what it is that they can get from the child or they overwhelmingly are inter interacting with the child because of what the child is for that person and not for the child's own good. They cannot let the child do what the child needs to do. They can't release them. Why? Because they love them because they need them. 
But if you need the child because you love the child, right? Love is the predominant thing. And love is its own entity. And if the child needs to be let go, well, I will because I love the child. And so what I'm saying to you is that this isn't about prizes. This is about relationship, right? This is about the, the, the sharing between Akadosh Baruch Hu and human beings in this particular capacity, Israel, but it's not exclusive to Israel. We'll talk about the unique elements of Israel. But it's important to recognize that this is all about sharing. It's all about Akadosh Baruch Hu sharing of himself with us and us sharing of ourselves with him, which is why it's very important for us to be us, because if we're not us, then it's just God sharing more of himself with himself. And Judaism doesn't look at things that way. We look at the unique entities as unique entities, right? So if I recognize that that's the point, yes, then the whole thing is a, is, is a question really of what is the quality of the relationship? If the quality of the relationship is invested, then God is interested in the relationship and the object of the relationship. In our, this comes out of our last class, right? So if we recognize that the nature of the birit was based in love, namely of Abraham Avinu, and then of his progeny, right? So then we recognize that the entire goal is, is in terms of sharing with Abraham, committing HaKadosh Baruch Hu, committing himself to that sharing, and therefore caring. Sharing is caring with the people that are the children of Abraham And if that is the case, right, then I understand that the relationship, the goal of the relationship is with the people of Israel, right, is with the entire cohort that is what we call Am Yisrael. There are no individual commitments of God to particular people outside of their well standing, their good standing, right? But everything that is in the Torah, aside from Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov, right? But everything outside of that, other than that, are commitments in terms of how they're presented to the Torah, are commitments of God to the nation of Israel. Not you and me, but to the nation as an entity. You and I will depend, our relationship with God will depend very much on what it is that I put into that relationship with God. Can I depend on certain default elements of the communal relationship that the people have with God? Yes. Those kinds of things. I guess as a member of Israel, I have some element of connection, of interaction with God, whatever it is that Olam means, which we're not going to get into tonight. But we recognize that that means some level of connection and intimacy with God. We'll see in Talmud that it works the other way as well. People that don't people of uh, pe Jewish people that don't experience the hiding of God's face should be concerned that they're not part of the people. Because God's out, hide my face from the people, right? So if I'm not hiding my face from you, well, then maybe you're not part of the people, right? The Gemara asks, asks this interesting question. So we can recognize that there may be some default elements of relationship that we touched on last time, simply because we are the children of Abraham Avinu. It's fine, but they are basal, right? They are at the base. And they still have a tremendous amount of room to develop. So now based on that basal reality of God committing himself to the people of Israel, based on his commitment to Abraham, Ishaq, and Yaakov, we read this halacha in Rambam, Hilchot Ta'anit. 
This halacha and harabam hilchotanit assumes relationship and assumes that therefore there's care and assumes that Israel should be living their lives in terms of that care. And if they are not living their lives in terms of that care, and they are experiencing hardships that would indicate a lack of care, they should wake up and start caring. You following me? Right? That's, a, that's the halakha in a nutshell, but let's look at the halakha in terms of where it is inside. Do I need to share the screen? Share the screen. Harambam writes, right? It's very, it's fascinating. We're not going to get into this right now, but it's fascinating that Harambam, of course, he needs to talk about fast days as the halachas, right? And, but he always connects whatever it is that he's writing to one of the mitzvot of the Torah. So he connects the facts, fast days to this astonishing mitzvah. This is a mitzvah that requires us to sound alarms when things are going badly. Which, oh, of course, of course, that's where you put the fast days, because the whole point that Harambam has with fast days we mentioned this, I don't know if I mentioned this here, I was mentioning this tons in New York because it was around the Shabbat at the time. Harambam's entire understanding of the purpose of fast days is to keep our minds about ourselves. That's why we don't eat. Right? So he says, There is a positive commandment in the Torah to call out and sound an alarm with trumpets on all hardships that come to the tzibur, right? It's the tzibur, right? The population. This, of course, is the national population of Israel. This is national law that we're reading over here, which is always what we're reading in the Torah. As it says explicitly in the Pasuk of Bar Yud, any uh, distress or hardship that comes to you, you shall... Uh, sound the trumpets. Kelomar, Rambam says. In other words, what that means to say is, anything that causes you distress, tsar literally means uh, restriction, oppression, anything that causes you an inability to live your open and free lives, right? You are now stuck in survival mode because you're being threatened. Anything that comes to you like that, like hunger and pestilence and locusts and so on, za'aku alehin, v'hariyo. Sound the alarm. Sound the trumpets. V'davar zeh midarkeh teshubahu. Harambam says this practice is among the pathways to teshubah. It's very important, right? To recognize the difference between teshubah and darkeh teshubah. There are pathways to teshubah and then there's teshubah. Right, so there is approaches to teshuvah, and then there's teshuvah. And Harambam in Hilchot Teshuvah talks about midarkeh teshuvah. He says among the pathways to teshuvah are A, B, C, D. He doesn't include this, but here he says this is one of them. One of them is calling attention to what's going on. So he says midarkeh teshuvahu. It is among the pathways of teshuvah shibizman shitavot sara. At the time that a hardship comes, and they sound the alarms, everybody will know that it's because of their deeds that this is going on for them, which assumes what? What does that assume? No. It assumes that the, the trumpets will bring awareness. I'm saying that 
it will bring them to this awareness, which is because of our deeds, this is happening. What is the assumption? If that is what they're going to come to an awareness of, what is the base assumption that allows that awareness? Yeah. That because of my relationship with God, these things shouldn't be happening. We should assume as a nation of Israel in relationship with God that these things shouldn't happen to us. That is a normal, rational assumption as far as the Torah is concerned. And if something like this is happening to you, you should assume that it's because of something wrong. Right? Which is totally contrary to how it is that we live today. Right? In which we think, I'm saying, I say we, I mean the general people, right? I'm not talking about you know, people that think everything is, is, is a sign from God, right? But in general, right, we live in a world in which, you know, these things happen in the world. Tsunamis happen, earthquakes happen, you know, stock markets crash, all kinds of things happen. It's just part of what goes on and relax. Yeah, which isn't nuts to say, because when you're not <coughs> in this state, well, then it is random. You are living in a random situation. Right? Then it's a question of the individual, like, okay, look, how should I know what your relationship with God is and what you expect in that relationship? This is talking about national, and it's talking about when the people are whole and sovereign, and they're running in the ways that they're supposed to run, and everything is nice and happy, and God's in his heaven, and there's rainbows in the sky, and so on and so forth. But this is expressing the fact that with that default, hardships should call, call your attention to the fact something's wrong, Right? So if something is wrong, yeah, and it is in this state, and you think that it's just haphazard, I mean, these things happen. If you say that in this situation, says Harambam, it's a derech achzaryut. It's just a mean-spirited way to look at the world. And I'll, and I'll unpack that for you, but let's look at it inside, right? He says, aval im lo velo if they don't sound the alarms, and they say, no, this is just, you know, the way that the world runs, and this is why it's happening to us. Don't read into it too much. Yeah. Notice that nikronikret, again, I'm making a play on the words over here. Nikronikret with a he instead of an aleph is happening. I'm saying don't read into it too much, right? They're saying, no, don't read into this too much, like a kriya, right? It's a, kra, it's a kara with a he. This is just happening. Well, if people say that, very strange language. Achzar in Hebrew means what? What is it? No, it's cruel. It's cruelty. Cruelty. It's a very strange language. Achzar is like two, it can be broken down into two words, right? Achzar means that this person sees everything as zar. Zar means strange. Which means what? It has nothing to do with me. It's not familiar. Familiar, of course, comes from family. Familial, right? It is not a part of me. This is something that is external to me. And that's the whole idea of a haphazard thing. The haphazard thing has nothing to do with me. Why does that have to do with cruelty? It has to do with cruelty because Cruelty, for all intents and purposes, requires a lack of empathy. Whereas if you feel what it is that you're doing to another person that is hurting that person, it's extremely difficult to hurt the person because you feel the pain that you're inflicting on the person. You have to, in order to hurt another person, pause or withhold empathy. 
And it is possible that, you know, mean-spirited people or cruel people really just have toned their empathy way down. It's not empathic. Why is this not empathic? It's not empathic because we are not relating to the world as though it is speaking to us, as though it is familiar to us, right? As though we are engaged with the world in a symbiotic relationship. As we should be, says Harambam, based on Torah, when we are in relationship with God. When we are in relationship with God, we should experience the world as speaking to us. As a symbiotic interaction. When that is not the case, no, then it isn't really part of my, my life. Now, I will say in parentheses, right, parenthetically, that it is possible, as we will see, for individuals to achieve a level of life in which the world really does run this way with them because of God's interaction with them. But this is talking about the nation as a whole. And it's dangerous if the nation as a whole starts to become non-empathic or another way that we would say it in these terms is callous, where you don't feel anymore any external uh, uh, stimulus. Right. And that's what Hanabam is saying. It's a derech If you've gotten to the point already where you're saying derech is what happened, then you've lost the empathy. You've, you've developed callousness around the world and how it is that it engages. And that is the first step to oblivion with regards to our relationship as a nation with God. Right? So that's what Hanabam is saying over here. And what causes us to, what that causes, and all it does is give us excuses to dig our heels into our bad behaviors. And by doing so, we forsake the relationship with God. And therefore, so what does Akadosh Baruch Hu do in the initial stages? He piles on the suffering. Why? Because if that's not going to wake you up, I'll, tone, I'll turn up the volume on the things that are supposed to prod you to wake up. And that's why the Pasuk says, if you walk with me haphazardly, I will walk with you haphazardly, and you'll see what it feels like to have somebody indifferent to you, which is the worst thing. That's why, I mean, you know, with children, it's, it's one of the major reasons for um, what we would call, uh, quote-unquote, bad attention. That children will incur the attention from parents that is punishing just so they can get the parents to pay attention to them. Because if the default in the house is uh, some level of indifference, a child will break a vase, break a window, hit his sister, yeah, toss dinner onto the floor, whatever it is, because the child knows that that will get mom or dad to pay attention to them. Because otherwise, it doesn't matter what I do. And then there's a question like, does it matter what I do? What do I need to do in order to have you to pay attention to me? And unfortunately and sadly, oftentimes, well, I don't know if it's oftentimes, but enough times in a, child's situ in a, ch in a child's life and situation, they find that the only meaningful attention is poor behavior. Otherwise, nothing really gets noticed. And what Kadosh Baruch Hu is saying over here is I'm constantly noticing you. Don't start thinking that you need my, you know, that kind of attention. And so he's saying that if you walk with me indifferently, which is the worst kind, right? The worst is not bad attention. The worst is no attention. 
A child prefers bad attention to no attention. We prefer bad attention to no attention. This is why in, among couples, couples will get into fights. Pick fights just to feel that something is going on and there's interaction. As opposed to the cool, non, you know, non-responsive nature of things. So Kadosh Baruch is saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to live with that. I will not put up with that. If that's the way that you live with me as though I don't exist, then I'll run with you as though you don't exist. How about that? Of course, that, of course, is a very interesting relationship tactic, right? It's because it's, I'm going to pretend that I don't care about you because I care about you. And you're going to pretend that you don't care about me because you're going to see if I'm paying attention. Right? And that's all of the sub-psychology that's running in the entire thing, which always does. So he says, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to just pile it on. <coughs> right? So we've got this, right? This is the, the, the nature of the, of the halacha. So then the question is, well, that's the default for Israel as a whole. What is necessary or required for individuals in order to be able to really have connection and relationship with God. What I'm saying is true that knowledge does not equal care or interaction, but what is it that does incur care and interaction? So our approach is going to be based on Harambam. And Harambam writes about this in the Moray Nebuchim. And what Harambam says is genuine care and interaction requires consciousness. You can't just go through the motions in order to be able to have a real connection and relationship with God. It is possible that the attempt to go through motions, right? There are, of course, levels. It's not either on or off. There are levels of relationship and there are levels, for that matter, of consciousness. In other words, there's a certain consciousness that I have, you know, that I, my limbs are attached. You know, it's kind of always there. And then there's uber consciousness where I'm, where I'm laser focused on something and the whole world falls back. There's different zones of consciousness. And so we will see that Harambam says that the whole nature of the interaction that we have with God is through our consciousness. It is the only thing that we share with him really. It's consciousness. So let's have a look. The only thing that I don't have is okay, you're going to read the more with me. Yes, follow along. It's a very, very well known section of the more. It's towards the end. This is, of course, of Kafir's translation. I've already explained to you, he has sechel this intellect, right? But it's more a question of conscious awareness. Yeah. gave us from him. That is the contact that we have between us and him. And it is entirely up to you. I love that word. Right? If you want to strengthen the connection and broaden it, abot literally means thicken it, broaden it, right? It's like broadband. Yeah, that's why I love it. Exactly what it is. It's saying if you want to create a strong broadband connection between you and God, you may, you can. I say, do it. 
Nothing is stopping you from doing it. And if you want to weaken it and thin it out, right, to be like poor dial-up, little by little. Interesting that he says little by little. Because what he's implying is to shut down consciousness is a lot of work. It doesn't happen so easily. You have to really train yourself not to care. People think it's much easier, right? It's much easier not to care than to actually care. But that's not true. They're both difficult. Really caring is difficult and really not caring is difficult. You have to train yourself in both ways. So I said, if you want to do that little by little, you can shut it down completely. That's a possibility. You can get to a point in your life where you cut the connection between you and God because you've cut your consciousness. I say you can do it. Now, what is it that either strengthens or weakens this consciousness? And this coloring is not mine. That's what they did in the website. The only way that this contact strengthens is in the active love and walking in with this intent, as we've explained. Right? So elsewhere, Harambam says that love of God is based on knowing God. You can't love him if you don't know him, and you only love him to the degree that you know him, the degree that you know him. And then there's halicha, right? It's walking with this aim. We saw also that uh, in one of the shiurim, I don't know which one is anymore, but uh, I thought I gave it for the Chagura. Didn't I say that, uh, the, read that Rambam, where uh, the, the entire focus of one's life needs to be knowing God? Right, right. right. That, that's it. That's it. Right? The weakening and thinning out you thin it out by occupying your mind with anything but him. Whatever is not about him, it just weakens the relationship and connection. So he says, Veda. Now you should know. Even if on an academic level, you were the most scholarly individual, you knew everything about God and how he runs the world and so on and so forth. You must know nonetheless that that data is not connective. It is conscious. That's why I'm saying that the sechel is consciousness. It's not data. It's not intellect. It's a very poor translation of sechel. Sechel is consciousness. And this is the proof. That is consciousness. Because what Harambam is saying is that intellect alone does not connect you to God. Meaning your intelligence doesn't connect you to God. It needs to be active consciousness on God that connects you to God. And so he's saying you could be the wisest in the world, but at the time that you empty your mind or your thoughts from God and you engage rather into whatever it is that you've got, whatever errands you're involved with, whether it's your eating that you need to do or whatever requirements you have. I'm not talking about, Harambam's not talking about frivolity. He's saying, no, you have to live a human life, right? That is not constantly focused on God. That's possible. Although in Deot, he says it all depends on what your 
what your mind is focused on while you're doing something, right? As to what the quality of the nature of that work is. Although it still does mean that if my mind is not actively focused, that I may not have this full-fledged connection. But like I said, it's not on or off. There's intensity of connection. So obviously, if I'm laser-focused on God, right? Or if I use an analogy, if I'm laser-focused on someone, well, I have that relationship. But it doesn't mean that if I don't have that laser focus on an individual at a particular time, the relationship dies. It just means that it's not charged at that moment in terms of connection, right? And you know what it's like when you're on the receiving end or lack thereof of somebody in their presence and they're not paying attention to you. You can feel there's no connection. As a matter of fact, the more intimate a relationship and for that matter, not even a relationship, the more intimate a connection is at any given time, it is easier to tell the subtlest uh, withdrawal of that awareness. You can tell it from the other person immediately. And the more you know the person, the more you have sensitivity to the vibes of the individual, the more intimate that the connection interaction is, you can tell instantly slight veering of attention. If you've never experienced this personally, you may one day, but take my word for it. It absolutely is true and it occurs. So if that's the case, Harambam is saying that's what it is that creates the connection, especially with God, because you have no other thing in common with him. It is the only thing that we have in common, and even that is in quotation marks, with God, is our consciousness, our creativity, our capacity to be able to ask, what if? All of that is God's stuff. Right, so... If we recognize that when your mind is not on him, he's not with you and you're not with him at that time. He's not with you then. Right, you're not with him and he's not with you. Because whatever relationship you have with him or connection with him is stopped at that moment. Right? And what I'm talking about is active attention and connection. It's not throwing you to the dogs, right? But it's not where you've got like this God force field around you at the time. Therefore, the Hasidim were extremely careful as to how it was that they spent the time and for how much time they spent when they were not thinking on God. They didn't want to maximize that time, want to minimize that time as much as possible. And they warned us against that. Anybody who was interested, they said, Do not put God out of your mind. That's that thing that every shul has, every synagogue has at the top of the Echal, right? Every classic synagogue. You know, now they started switching up the psukim and whatever. But it used to be like every sort of classic synagogue was, Shiviti Adonai the Nigdi Tamid. Right? It's a quote from the Pasuk. I have God in front of me at all times. Kimimimimi by my right side, Balemot, lest I fall. Falter. That's David Melech or Daily. Ken, like he says, Amar David, Shiviti Adolan and Ditamid, Kimimini Balemot. Right? Omer, what does that say? What is the meaning of that Pasuk, Shiviti? It's saying, I did not empty my mind of God, is what David is saying. It's as if he's right in my right arm. As conscious as I am of my right arm, I'm conscious of God. I'm never, never, I'm never not aware of it, even for a moment. Right? Because of the, 
the the quickness of its of its movement, and therefore I will never falter because he's always with me. I will not fall. So now he says something very, very interesting. And this we're not going to go through too much because we're done. Because I want you to know. I mean, isn't isn't mitzvot enough? Mitzvot are definitely enough for you to be on the right path. They're definitely enough for you to develop yourself. But they are not always enough to connect you with God. Simply by the doing of the mitzvot. And he says, you should know that all of the avodah that we do, like Kriyata Torah, Kriyata Torah here, he doesn't necessarily only mean the reading of the Torah, right? He's talking about Kriyata Torah, study, right? reading Torah. Tefillah and the prayers, Asiyat Shalom, and all the other mitzvot, by the way, right? He just uses those because those are very mind-oriented, right? Prayer is very mind-oriented. Torah is very mind-oriented. The whole point of those mitzvot is to get your mind focused on God rather than the mundane elements of the world. So you should see that, you know, they're filling your life because you're working on your relationship with him and not other stuff. Therefore, let me tell you, if when you pray, you just move your mouth and say the words and your face is by the wall, but you're thinking about your business while you're doing it, on your Koreta Torah Bishonechai, you're reading Torah or studying Torah with your mouth, but your heart is thinking about the building of your house, and you're not paying attention to what you're reading. And anytime that you do a mitzvah, and you do it only with your evarecha, your limbs, like you're digging a hole in the ground, like some kind of monkey or mechanical action. Like you're cutting a tree down or something like that. You have no thought about what is the idea of what it is that you're doing. And not who commanded it and what the goal of is it. Don't think that you've gotten to any goals. You've reached any goals. The takhlit here means the goal, like capital G goal, like the ultimate goal. It's not that you haven't gotten to any goals. I mean, it's better to do that than to, you know, be doing other stuff. You are close then to a person of, of which it says in the Pasuk that they are very close to you, God, in their mouths, but very far from you in their insides, right? In their guts. Okay, enough with that, right? But you, you, and we can go on and on about this, but you get what it is that Harambam is saying. So what's very important here and very clear here is that Harambam is saying that our connection to God is based on our consciousness of God. Nothing else. And the degree of our consciousness is the degree of our connection. Like I say, it is not all on or off. There are degrees. The level of consciousness is the level of connection. And it is possible that a person can always get to a point where almost everything that he thinks and sees or she thinks and sees is God-oriented. It takes a lot of study and effort and focus and so on to do that, but it's possible. And still it could be, you know, the back run, background running 
you know, and then there's something else that has to be dealt with that they're here now. So it tells us two things. One, it tells us we cannot assume a person's connection with God, although we can observe how it is the person thinks and engages with God. Most importantly, it's important for us to observe ourselves with regards to that. And then the question, you know, uh, is this parking spot hashkaha or providence or not? Well, the only answer to that is, you know, Can you tell me. Where's your mind? That's the only, really the only, the only, uh, the only answer to it. But that is it. And that means that it is not default. There is a certain level, like I said, of default for any Ben Israel, simply being someone who is of the nation that God pays attention to in a particular way. But it's still based there but it needs to be cultivated and there's no way around that there's no way around that and people want ways around that. people try to find ways around that all the time and that is why every single smula in the book and out of the book and that people bring up are all ways of trying to shortcut this they believe that if they wear a red string this particularly has God this gets God all warm and fuzzy inside they believe that if they have a bracha party, I don't know if they have those here, they have those in New York, right? That if they sit around and have a whole bunch of food and say brachot on all the foods, that, that that's a special thing. That's, that's really gets God really excited. In the old days, they used to think that if, you know, they put the animals up on the altar the way that they're supposed to without any real consciousness or involvement or connection, that that's what God wants. All of those things cut corners futilely. There are attempts to cut corners. They never do. You cannot cut the corners of true relationship. To the contrary, it really creates a, a, an estrangement and alienation of the relationship. It's insulting. People think you, you want your money to be blessed, make a challah in the shape of a key. Better yet, put a key in it. This somehow is really going to bring God into your life. It's nuts. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it really is. It's really nuts. I mean, think of what it is that that says about God. Forget about whether it works or it doesn't work. Think about what it says about it. You would never want to have a relationship with someone like this in, in human form. But this is okay with God. Seriously. So, you know, it's important to recognize. So it is important for us to recognize that uh, there's other things that I'm going to put here, but I, I think that for, for to close, I want to point this out, the, this point that uh, our friend Fawul makes. And he just says it in the very beginning of Home Mystic because he doesn't really develop it in terms of the source, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present this. And that is, if I recognize that my consciousness is my connection, right? The most uber element of that is prophecy. So what we know about prophecy is that a prophet, in order to be able to be prof prophecy ready, 
because right? it's all a prophet can ever be. Only A prophet can only be prophecy ready. A prophet outside of Moshe Rabbeinu cannot demand communication from God. All you can do is be ready to get communication from God. And what that requires is uber consciousness. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Right? Harabam says that what you need in order to be an avi, ultimately, is you have to have full control of your drives and so on and so forth. But really what that means is that your conscious mind is master of your life. Right? If you think about it, any time that we fail or falter, it's because our conscious mind is not running the show. If we fail or falter, it's because there is some element of our limbic system, not our prefrontal cortex, right? Which is where, you know, the conscious mind really functions most, although you can't pull the brain apart and say that consciousness only exists in one part of it. But when the limbic system is functioning, it is a very primal element of the brain that is functioning. It is not an element of the brain that is uniquely human, right? It's the element of the brain that we share with other animals. And the more basal it gets, right? If you get into the, uh, the amygdala and so on, right? It gets to be shared with reptiles, right? We share that across animal species down to the reptiles. It isn't a conscious oriented brain. It is more a fight flight brain. It is more a feeding survival brain. And that <coughs> is not a relationship brain. So you will notice that the development of animals right, is towards relationships. So the reptiles do not act in relationship systems. They're cold-blooded animals. They do not have uh, nurturing childhoods of any kind, right? Mammals, by definition, are animals that nurse their young. That's what it means to be a mammal, right? Mammary glands, mammalia, right, are to give milk and nurse their young. And that is a very different kind of species. That's a species that does have some sort of social interaction, right? Has some kind of uh, warmth of sorts between them and where there needs to be care for young and so on and so forth. To the point that you get to human beings that are born essentially as fetuses that remain uh, children till about they're you know, 52 years old. And then finally they decide to you know, get up and do something for themselves and then they die. But the most of it is this is this is profoundly relationship oriented. And so when we recognize that, we recognize that the consciousness of our minds, the capacity that we have to entertain alternative realities that are not present for us now, is uniquely human. That's the big development of human beings. And the reason why we're born as fetus is because we have these big brains that cannot stay inside for too long because they'll never get out, right? So we need to get those brains out so that they can develop. That's, that's the nature of the situation. And so when we understand that the uniquely human mind is what connects us to God, which is why Arambam says that is the Tzelem Elohim, right? That is the image of God, the capacity to be able to entertain and create alternative realities and bring them into being. That is genuinely what it is that connects us. That is the connection point. And so when we understand that's connection point, what a prophet needs to be is an individual that lives in that space completely. And where the other elements of life don't ever get the best of that space of, of being. That is the whole human in its fullest, without regression.
If I understand that, then I understand that in order for God to communicate with me prophetically, I need to be uber-conscious. But what Ham Faur points out is that that is only one direction. It's a sharing of space with God, right? The prophecy. It's God communicating down to humans through the conduit, i.e. consciousness, that allows for that communication. But there is a capacity for that to happen in the other direction, where we reveal to God, so to speak, right? What is happening for us in our world from our perspective in our mind? And that's prayer. And according to Halakha, is what Khamfur does not say, but according to Halakha, tefillah, which is very, is by definition meditative, right? By definition, tefillah is thought. That's what the word, the, the root palal, pelamed lamed, is. It is contemplative, right? It is focusing of mind. So we see where Yaakov Abinu sees Yosef after all those years. He says, I never imagined, I never thought, I never focused on, contemplated what it would be to see your face again because I thought you were dead. That filalti is the root of tefillah, which is why the lamed of tefillah is a strong lamed. And it has a dagesh hazak in it because the second lamid drops and the dagesh replaces the second lamid, right? It, it's a sign that there's supposed to be another lamid there. That always happens whenever you drop a double-lettered root. So I say tefillah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the act of contemplation, of, of focusing my mind. On what? On God in this case, but that's what I'm doing, which is why the tefillin are paraphernalia for that act, right? They're there in order to be able to focus that. That's what a tefillah, tefillah had, tefillin, right? Tefillin is just plural of tefillah. And what is the halakha? The halakha is in order to pray, one must clear one's mind of all thought and consider, think as though they are standing in front of Shekhinah, the presence of God, and then speak. And that's why any prayer that is not with a focused mind is not prayer because you're not talking to God. You're talking to the wall. How could you consider you're talking to God? Well, God hears me. No, no. Yeah, yes, but no, you're not communicating to him. And that's the same thing as just because God knows you're talking doesn't mean that you are talking to him or that he is necessarily listening to you. It requires tefillah for that to happen. And that just means that your mind is focused and you have to recognize that you are standing before the presence of God. If you're not doing that, it's not prayer. And why does Anabam say you have to think as if you're standing in front of the presence of God and not and stand in front of the presence of God? Because nobody can be so presumptuous to think that just because I've got everything in place that God's presence is coming to me. No, you get yourself to the place where that might be what it is that should happen. Everything's there in order for it to happen. I hope it does happen. So what Rabbi Faur says is that that is the all that is the the opposite direction of prophecy. It's me revealing myself to God and speaking to God, but that has to happen along the same conduit, so to speak. And that's why the halakha uh, requires that in order for it to be able to function. 
So he says, this is an Homer Mysticus, where he says, God the creator and humans the created can transcend their specific realities and communicate with one another, right? So that's saying that God too needs to transcend his specific reality. Being created in the image of God means Selim Elohim, right? Precisely that God and humans have the faculty to transcend each other's realities and to reveal themselves to one another, which of course presupposes that God is not by default in our world as we expect. This is why in the Torah you have God saying, I'm going to go down and see, right? Quote unquote, whatever that means. Yeah. This type of relation is linguistically rather than metaphysically structured, concerns the dynamic participation of the first and second persons. Revelation is the act of speech between God and human. It's the act of communicative speech between God and human. As such, it involves linguistic subjectivity, the faculty to say I to a you, which is why I was saying at the beginning of Shiur, this is a fundamentally Jewish idea that what? We are not just more God stuff. The whole point of creation is to create other and share with that other. You cannot share if there is no other. So as far as Torah is concerned, there is a me and there is a him. And that needs to be a dialogue. It's not that I'm just supposed to discover that I'm really the dream of Brahman. And that's nirvana. You is someone who could address the first person I. Structurally, there is no difference between prophecy, structurally, there is no difference between prophecy, where the revelation is initiated by the first person, God, and addressed the second person, human, and prayer, where the revelation is initiated by the first person, human, addressed the second person, God. Of course, qualitatively, this is on page four, by the way. I mean, if you missed this, then you missed this, right? You, you read the book. Yeah, so in prayer, so what he's saying is structurally as opposed to what qualitatively, the quality of prophecy is not the quality of prayer. It's not the same. But structurally, it's the same structure. Yeah, that's what he's saying. In prayer, where the revelation is initiated by the first person human addressed the second person God. Prophecy prayer is the essence of Hebrew mysticism. Being that what? That the transcendence of my world and self is what essentially we would get. Okay, so that's it. I'll see if there's any, uh, let's see, because last time I asked for questions here in the room, so I'll, ask, I'll look for the questions first on the chat. How significant is it that what? Would you agree that punishment is a type of caring? Yes, of course. And if so, what is the difference between God punishing and God knowing but not caring? Or is all punishment a mere accident that is no? I would say thank you for the question, Khamidi. Punishment, qua punishment, right? Meaning where there where if we define punishment as a response to a transgression or action that requires discipline or responsiveness. Of course, it's responsive. Do, I would not equate hardship uh, to punishment. So it's possible that a person could experience bad things in one's life when they are not in a state of hashkaha simply because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Punishment is always care. Right, which is why I brought the pasuk over here. I didn't read it with you, but I brought the pasuk over here. It's beautiful language, right? Because the pasuk is saying, I'm just gonna close this one second. The pasuk is saying, you must know this in your heart, right? This has to be instilled in you because you're gonna experience hardships through me as punishment. 
You must know, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, really Moshe is saying to them, in the same way that a father chastises his son out of love and care to be able to discipline the child, if, of course, I'm saying with caveat that the father is a healthy father and a proper and well-intending father, I'm not talking about lunatic fathers, right? That is how HaKadosh Baruch Hu chastises you. Or you have in, uh, you know, in Mishle, Hosech Shibto Sone Beno. Spare the rod. What's the English term? Spoil the child. That is a poor translation. It says, spare the rod, hate the child. You spare the rod, you hate the child. You just could care less. You don't care about that child. Right? So I think, I hope that answers. Yes, of course, punishment is always caring if it is appropriate, and certainly if it's coming from God and such. But hardship is not always punishment. That's important. Okay, thank you. No, not about. Oh, how significant is it that this teaching of Rambam specifically seems to address crises affecting the community? I said, the whole introduction was that. It's not communities. It is Israel, right? This whole thing is about the nation of Israel. I, I spoke about that at the beginning. Very, very clear. Uh um, Hold on. If tefillah is related to both the korbanot and the avot, how does the reverse of prophecy then fit into the equation? Is that well, we're, we're is the prophecy of Eli connection post korbanot or was the form of okay? So I think that there's an assumption being made in the question that has to be recognized that might be a bit off the mark. Tefillah is related to korbanot, not as replacements of korbanot. Tefillah is related to korbanot as it, they correspond to the times of day that the korbanot were, at, were enacted, and they replace that avodah with alternative avodah, but not that they are more of the same in a different form. I think that that's the first thing to recognize. So therefore, the question, I don't know that the question still manifests. The avot also, it's only looking at corollaries between the nature of a particular tefillah and time of day and the nature of the particular av that they correspond to. <coughs> I think it's important to recognize that when you when you say if it's related to both, because the relationship to both doesn't necessarily assume a further relationship to how it is the prophecy and tefillah manifests. Although I encourage you to explore that and write Hidushim on those things. Sorry. So okay, we'll pause if there's anything in here before I get hands on thing. Yeah. You're saying with the prophet space, how do you know you said it means you need to know that you need to know more or less the nature of your relationship with God. And you need to be honest about it. Story. What guy and what story? I didn't know what the parking story. I was just referring to where a person gets a parking space. I don't know if there's, there's a story. I don't know. If there's a story. But we're not telling the story now. I'm saying to you simply, simply that you, like any one of us, needs to approximate the nature of the relationship that we have with Akadosh Baruch, who based on a honest recognition of my, the nature of my mind and consciousness to God and what I do to either to enhance it or limit it. And in that capacity, interact with the world as, as, I, as, I, as is in tandem with it. There is a spectrum. You don't ever capital K no. 
It's a matter of approximation. And it is approximation on a spectrum. And that you are always striving to enhance. That's all I can tell you. If you want a textbook you know by ABC, you're not going to get it from me. Because that's not the way relationships work. But there should be a space where you know that you have invested, that you are conscious, that the world is indeed speaking to you on a consistent basis. And that is something that only you can know and nobody else. Who, me? I know what I know. That's a very personal thing, which I will not share with you. <laughs> as I wouldn't share other personal things about relationships that I have because it would cheapen the relationship. The more that a personal, intimate relationship is exposed to others, the more it cheapens it and lessens its intimacy and uniqueness. And the same is true with God. Walk with God in reserve. Hide it. Secret service. All right. Where are we? Berthold. Hi. Yeah, thanks. My Siddur says that at certain times during the prayers, uh, one is requested to be quiet. Um, I mean, not to talk. That would implicate to me that it is um, tolerated um, that at other times um, one can talk. Similarly, uh, similarly, uh, during the second reading of the Amidah, um, it is actually, at least in the synagogue where I'm usually at, very noisy, where people after the, uh, uh, after the um, uh, Kiddushah um, speak, greet each other, etc., etc., that though both seems to be in contradiction with what with what you are saying, i.e., focusing on the dialogue with God. How can I bring the two things together? Okay, so I first have to uh, ensure that I've understood your question. You're saying that the your sidur says that at points in the prayer one should be silent. So I need yes. you to specify that for me because I'm not sure what it's referring to. For example, um, I'm not having all the points in mind, but for example, of course, uh, during the Amidah and the Musaf, um, but also there are certain wait, other wait. parts. So during the Amidah, meaning that the Amidah should be said silently? No, where it says uh, talking, speaking is forbidden, basically. I mean, other speaking that is not related to the prayer. It explicitly are you talking says about, Are you talking about the repetition of the Amidah? No, I'm talking in general. The repetition of the Amidah is another thing. So you're saying um, in the... I'm just trying to understand what you're referring to. In the, you're saying that when a person is saying the silent Amidah, they shouldn't speak? shouldn't speak to someone else. Well, obviously, you shouldn't speak to somebody else if you're talking to God. Yes. So, and that is like the recommendation or the request in small print. In, it's not in, a re recommendation. It's saying that it's something that doesn't need to be said, but is being said. Yes. Because it's the same way that if I'm saying to you, if I'm talking to you, Berthold, right, and I'm having a conversation with you, and in the middle of the conversation, I start talking to somebody else, it's not only rude, right, it's completely disregarding the conversation. Of course. So that's all. That's, that's, that's absolutely inappropriate. And the fact that this cautions you, it's like me saying, listen, you know, Berthold, when you're speaking to me, please don't talk to somebody else. <laughs> So sure. okay, no, really, it's what it is. It's what we're saying. Where it's, it's gotten to the point that people look at prayer as so rote oriented 
and so much of an incantation that we actually have to say, listen, when you're doing this, you're supposed to not talk to other people, right? That's really the, the situation. So, of course, you shouldn't be speaking to somebody else during that time. During the Chazara, during the repetition of the Amidah, it is appropriate that when the Shaliyah Sibur, the messenger of the Sibur, is speaking tefillah out loud on behalf of the tzibur, which was essentially established for those who don't know how to pray on their own, then the proper derech eretz of the tzibur is to remain standing and silent. That's a proper thing. The tzibur is supposed to be standing and silent during that time. Everybody sits down. Thank goodness the S&P still have them and have to stand during the hazara because that's halacha. Supposed to stand. Yeah? And be silent. So the fact that everybody goes around and talks and so on and so forth during the Hazara is a, an aberration. It's atrocious. It's horrible. It's disgraceful. It's, it's, I mean, every last horrible behavior. And people do it because they have no care and uh, for appropriateness or honor to God. So they will, they will do everything that they can to be able to honor each other. And they kiss the Sefer Torah a hundred times, but they talk like, uh, like a zoo when the Hazara is being said, and it's completely inappropriate. And for that reason, by the way, Harambam in Teshubah wrote that we should no longer repeat the Amidah in such situations, in situations where you find that the congregation is talking to each other during the time that the Tzibur, that the Shaliyah Tzibur is representing, is putting forth the Tefillah to the people. If the people are talking during that time, you should not repeat the Amidah because it's an aberration. It's disgraceful. And so we're creating a situation where people should act in a disgraceful way. Instead, the whole Amidah should be said out loud once and that's it. Okay, thank you. I hope that helps. Yeah. Okay. Robert Sessler. Um, just um, <clears throat> following on from the state you made about the, the, the key bait into the Chala. Yes. So as, aside from the fact that God commands us to take a lulav and etra, why is it any more irrational rational rational um that i wave certain twigs on sukkot um and never, then I bake. Yeah. robert thank you for that question i never said anything about rationality that was not a point of rationality it was a point simply of that god didn't command it so i'm imagining that god is interested in me doing this particular thing that i've completely concocted of my own mind in order to be able to appease him because I think that this action will appease him. The lulav and etrog and so on and so forth is something that was commanded to me by God, which in and of itself is enough. And even Harambam says about that, that one should contemplate the very least that God commanded me to do this and I am acting in response to that command out of love and care for him. That is completely and utterly void in the shisul chala. All it is is an act that I believe will somehow create God's interest in my money. And my point in that is that it has nothing to do with an active engagement in relationship with God. Nobody's doing that in order to be able to engage in love with God. What they're doing is to hopefully push God's buttons and get him to pay attention. As though it's some kind of mechanical act. But you're right. As far as the mitzvot of concern, are concerned, if they're only practiced mechanically, and one doesn't have consciousness that God commanded me to do this, and I'm responding to that command, then yeah, it's not that much better. But it doesn't have to do with rationality. Because there are many things, when a man loves a woman, he'll sleep out in the rain. As I think one song said. Yeah. I was gonna say, how does that, what you're saying, differ from the... What is that, what I'm saying? Sorry. How does what you're saying... What am I saying? <laughs> that 
these things are basically like yeah. superstition. Correct. How does that differ from what we do on Rosh Hashanah with the Simanim? Because isn't that also saying that? Oh, so that's a good that's a good question. So the Simanim are precisely that Simanim. They're not meant to incur God's favor. They're not meant to change the nature of my life. They are simply meant to stimulate my consciousness. That's different. You can say without the siman. The siman is siman. It's exactly that. Nothing more. It is simply a signal. It is a, a sign of something that helps me psychologically. And that's why all we do is play on the words. It's just a play on words. So it's all siman, siman. So simanim are wonderful for human psychology. We do all that. We do that all the time. We do all kinds of signifiers in our lives to help keep our, our consciousness. But it's not because I eat pomegranate, I'm getting God to make my mitzvot. You, you can eat all the pomegranate you want. If it's not prayer and accompanied by a yiratzon, you know, hazag baruch, but it's not going to work. I love that question. <laughs> that is a beautiful question. The question was, does that mean that all manipulation stems from emotional deficiency? Well, I can't say that all manipulation stems from emotional deficiency because people can be perfectly healthy and manipulate and just be bad, right? But I would say that the majority of times that manipulation occurs, it is because of emotional deficiency. Being manipulated as well, one being manipulated. I think that the one being manipulated as well is also such a result of such. What you're asking, you don't read, you may or may not, maybe everybody else doesn't realize the depth of what it is that you're asking. But you're saying something that sounds like it is quite sweeping and superficial. And I'm saying to you that you are not, and that the points that you are making are quite right and precise. And if I had to defend them, I would, but we don't have the time to. And I'm saying that you are right on both counts, that more often than not, right, I will say it that way, right, nine times out of ten, or however it is you want to say, that manipulations are a result of emotional deficiency. And you, it's more than emotional, but yes, deficiency of, of psychological and emotional wholeness. And the allowance of oneself to be manipulated is the same. And uh, yeah. Very good question. Okay, with that, I'm going to end here. All right. I bid every bid everyone a good, uh, yeah, good rest of the week. Please God. Can I? Can I end? That's all for now, folks. Thanks and have a great day.